Good morning. So, we are, over the month of August, spending some time just reflecting deeply on one famous verse. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. So this was Jesus' response to the question of what is the most important commandment of the law. Today, we're going to focus specifically on loving God with all your soul. I mean, what does that actually mean? What, what does it look like for us to live that commandment out? So, I think the first step to answering that question is to think a bit about what actually is your soul? I mean, I, I could probably ask any number of different people and get a very wide range of answers. You could try looking up in the dictionary, which I did, uh, and you'd find something like this. The spiritual or immaterial part of a human being or animal regarded as immortal. You might hear about people who talk about the soul as the essence of who you are, the most important part of you, or about the part of you that is saved by God and taken off to heaven when you die. You might hear people talking about your thoughts and emotions, like your mental life, or you might hear people talking about Aretha Franklin, I don't know. Um, It'd be easy to get confused. There are lots of different answers that people might give. And we have to be careful, because not all of these answers come to us from the Bible. A lot of them actually come more from a tradition of thought that goes back to ancient Greek philosophy. And this is an idea that our souls are are an immaterial part of us. We are souls that are trapped inside a physical body and that are released from that body at death, and that the soul is kind of the the core of who you are, the the real you, if that makes sense. But that's not actually really how the Bible talks about things. To get an idea how the Bible does talk about souls, we're going to have to look in the Bible. (laughs) Controversial, I know. Um, But to do this, we're going to need to, uh, and I apologize here, go through a little brief ancient Hebrew lesson. So I hope you're excited about that. Yes, great. So Jesus is quoting when he gives that answer, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. He's quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, and the word that he uses there for soul is the word nephesh. Can you say that with me? Nephesh, yes, great. So that's actually one of the most common words in the Old Testament. It's used hundreds of times. But in our modern translations of the Bible, you might not really get that impression because although the the kind of the main translation that you would see if you looked it up in a dictionary would be soul, many, many times, actually the majority of times in some of the more modern translations, it's not actually translated as soul. They'll use a whole bunch of other words. And that's because this word nephesh is actually a lot bigger and a lot broader than maybe our word soul would capture. There isn't really one single word in English that covers the whole range of meaning of this word nephesh. And that's actually quite a common problem when translating an ancient language into a modern language. Their culture was really different to ours, and the way they thought doesn't always line up with our modern ways of thinking. And that's something we always have to be aware of. But the word soul is the primary translation that we'll see, but actually... It can be translated as, as a whole range of different things. There we go, yes. So words like life, heart, mind, desire, person, 
all sorts of things. And that idea that we talked about earlier, this concept of the soul being the the non-physical part of us, which is temporarily living inside a physical body, and it's released from that body at death, that's not really how this word nefesh is used in the Bible at all. In the Bible, life after death is always thought about in terms of a physical resurrection. I mean, that's why it's so important in the Gospels, and they make it so clear that on Easter Sunday, the tomb was really empty, and Jesus really was physically present. And this is because in the Bible, nefesh, or soul, refers to a person as a whole, as a living being, both physical and non-physical. A soul is not something that you have inside your body, A soul is what you are. It's all of you. So to get some examples of how this word nefesh is used, let's take a look through just a handful of the times it appears in the Bible. So it first appears in Genesis chapter 1. And this might surprise you, but the first time it appears, it doesn't actually refer to a person at all. So God is creating the world in Genesis 1, verse 1, Sorry, Genesis chapter 1, verse 20, and he says, let the water teem with living creatures. But the word in Hebrew for creatures is actually nefesh. I love this idea that God says, let the waters teem with all kinds of living creatures. And what happens is that they're filled, next slide, with soul. Hey, yes. I, if anyone's offended by the poor humor, um, my excuse is, the feedback from some of my four-minute talks, basically, was David said, Ed, we need to get more of your, quote, natural sense of humor coming through. <laughs> so, um, yeah, any complaints, direct them to David. Uh, I'm only doing what I was told. Anyway, moving on. Um, in Genesis chapter 2, God is creating the human beings. And it says that the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. And that is a living nefesh. It's interesting to note, isn't it, that a nefesh, a soul, is not something that God puts inside the body. It's what the human becomes. It's this idea of dust, physical earth, plus God's breath adds up to create a living soul. So the word can be used simply to refer to a person or a fish. And later on in Genesis chapter 46, we see it used basically just to refer to a person, kind of in a head count. It says that 66 persons went into Egypt with Jacob. And again there, the word is nefesh, 66 souls. And in fact, authors in the Bible can use this word um, if they want to... emphasize their own personal agency in a situation. So an example of this is in Psalm 119. The writer says, let um, me live that I may praise you. But really, in Hebrew, it's let my soul, my nefesh live that it may praise you. So it's, it's all of them, but it's referred to as their soul. And so this, this kind of leads to a whole range of uses where it's talking about all kinds of aspects of a person both the physical and the the non-physical. So in Numbers, chapter 11, we see the Israelites doing what they do best, complaining to God about how they would actually prefer to be back in slavery in Egypt. And they say, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and garlic. 
just to make sure they you know, listed every single vegetable that they were missing out on. But now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. And actually, the phrase there that's translated, we've lost our appetite, is literally, our nefesh have dried up. So there it's referring to kind of physical hunger and thirst. Whereas in Psalm 10, we see it says, the wicked man boasts about the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. So there we see the word nefesh used about what's going on inside a person on a kind of heart level. And these are just a few of the examples that we could use. The word appears hundreds and hundreds of times, and it's got a wide range of meaning, as you can see. It's interesting to see, actually, in all those examples I showed you, not one of them in the NIV translation does that word nefesh come up as soul. And it can be used to talk about both a physical reality and an inner reality. A soul is a person, all of who you are. So that's the Hebrew word for soul. Hebrew lesson over. If you fell asleep during that bit, now you can wake up again. But, yeah, hopefully you can see that, yeah, hopefully you see it's worth it because if you, if you change the way you think about what a soul is, that actually has a big impact on how you go about loving God with all your soul. If we're called to love God with all our souls, that's a call to love God with everything we are with all of us. It's not purely a mental or an emotional exercise. It will also be a physical reality. It's a call to bring every part of ourselves into the task. If we're to love God with all our souls, there's no part of us that we can exclude from that. God is the one who made us, and he knows who we really are. He knows everything about us, the good and the bad, the things we're proud of and the things that we would rather nobody knew about. And knowing all of that, he simply loves us. When our instinct is to hide away, God's call is for us to bring every part of our lives, all of our souls, into line with love for him. This is what the Bible calls repentance. And it was at the center of Jesus' message of the gospel. So now we're going to read a passage from Luke chapter 19, where we can see a glimpse of what all of this might actually look like in reality. So this is Luke chapter 19, starting at verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he is gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. 
So Zacchaeus was not a popular person. Jesus' choice to go and stay at his house was hugely unpopular with the rest of the people. They probably would have thought that of everyone in the city, he was the least worthy of hosting a famous religious teacher like Jesus. And this was because of his position as the city's chief tax collector. Now, it might not be that surprising that a tax collector is not the most popular guy in town, but the situation in this time and place made that especially true. You see, in Jesus' time in Israel, they were under the control of the Roman Empire. It was a brutal military occupation. And the Roman policy towards their far-off provinces was basically to suck as much tax revenue as possible out of them to pay for the massive army that was doing the occupation, but also, you know, the, the lavish celebrations and the beautiful monuments that were going up in the city of Rome. And this, this was supposed to be the promised land, the place that God had promised to Israel as their home to be a free people and to live at peace in. It was like they were living in yet another time of exile, except now they were under foreign rule in the very place that God had promised to them. So any Israelite like Zacchaeus, who worked with the Roman regime to collect taxes, would have been held in the lowest contempt. I'm sure there would have been different opinions out there, but there would have been many people who saw him as an outright traitor to his people. And not only that, he was enriching himself as part of the process. The way the tax collecting system worked, it was basically put out to contract. Anyone could bid to be given the rights to collect taxes in a particular area based on how much they thought they could bring in. And you were only obligated to give as much as you'd bid back to the Roman authorities. Anything else that you could get, you were allowed to keep as profit for yourself. So you can probably see how this was a system that would lead to abuse. Zacchaeus would have been incentivized to overcharge, to cheat his neighbours, and all in service of the people who were occupying their home and enriching himself in the process. There is a reason why in the Gospels, tax collectors and sinners go together as a pair. But the reason we actually know anything about Zacchaeus at all is not that he was a terrible tax collector, morally compromised. We know about him because he changed, because he repented. As a first century Jew, every day he would have prayed this verse that we're meditating on as part of this month of August. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Or maybe he actually felt so cut off from his community, he would have given up that practice of prayer altogether. But either way, I'm sure, he would have felt deep inside, there was a sense that not all was well with the way he was living. He was cutting himself off from God and from the community of God. Yes, he'd made himself rich, but at the cost of alienating himself from the rest of his community and rejecting the call to live with the aim of loving God in all of his life. And maybe this is why he was so keen to see Jesus as he came through his town. Here was a man who really did seem to love God with all his soul. He really did live out that prayer. And he was inviting and teaching other people how to live the same way. And not only that, he was famous for wanting to spend time with tax collectors just like Zacchaeus. Actually, it seems like Zacchaeus was really committed to getting a glimpse of Jesus. 
when I doubt whether climbing trees was something he did on a regular basis. He was a wealthy guy. It probably would have been quite undignified. But when he did that, Jesus noticed. He sensed an invitation from Zacchaeus. And classic Jesus, he didn't even wait for it to be put into words to accept it. I think that feeling, the uncomfortable awareness that we are not living in alignment with what God wants in a particular part of life, something we all experience, is the conviction the Holy Spirit brings. I mean, it might be big, like, you know, my work is systematically oppressing my people and enriching myself, or it might be something smaller, but it's something that we all experience throughout life. But we have a choice of what we do when we get that feeling. We can try to ignore it. In my experience, this is not very effective. And that's probably because God is not actually easily ignored. When we ignore it, that, that unease, that feeling starts to fester. It will become shame, or bitterness, or an active hiding of part of ourselves from God, as if we could ever really do that. But if we don't ignore conviction, we can try to do something about it. However, even so, if we try to fix things out of the power of our own strength, we may well find that we put in a lot of work, but we don't see a lot of fruit. We're very good at misreading what's really going on inside of us and only dealing with what's on the surface. God's power is available to bring about transformation in our lives. And we meet God's power in the presence of Jesus. Zacchaeus met with the transformational power of Jesus because he sought Jesus out. And when he did that, Jesus stepped in. He invited himself to stay and he got to work. If we want to see things change in our lives, and I hope we all do, we need to be seeking out opportunities to encounter Jesus. Now, for each of us, that might look different. There are loads of different ways that we can put ourselves in a place where we can have that encounter. Times of sung worship, times of silence and retreat, times of going out and serving other people, time spent in the presence of other people in community celebrating, time spent just reading the Bible, meditating on a, on a passage, reading long chunks of the Bible. There are loads of different ways. They're all good. But whatever stage of life we're at, we need to have those practices in our lives we need to be building rhythms and habits to make space to encounter Jesus in our lives. We need that to be a priority because that is the place, encounter with Jesus, where we can have the power to be transformed. But inviting God to transform us doesn't mean we can stop there and the job is done. We still have to do the job of physically bringing our reality and our actions into line with the transformation God brings about in our hearts. If we're called to love God with all of our souls, and our souls are all of us, both a mental and a physical reality, then repentance has to change not just the way we think, but the way we act. For Zacchaeus, this meant he had to make real changes to the way he handled his money and handled his work, starting with giving generously and treating people fairly. There was a real cost to him in this financially. But repentance always has an impact on the way we live. This is what it says in 1 John, written by one of Jesus' closest disciples. 
we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. So this process of living it out is where it's also really important to have community around us. People who we trust, who can hold us to account, remind us of what God is doing in our lives. It's vital. So an example, God has been talking to me recently about prayer, about the disparity between what I claim to believe about God and the way that actually lives, like manifests itself in my life in terms of the amount of prayer, the, the way I pray. And this wasn't a condemnatory thing. It wasn't belittling. It never is with God. But it was about opening my eyes to the possibility of how things could be better. But if I just tried to do something about that on my own, probably what I would have done is just like try and pray a bit harder. And knowing myself... I might have been able to keep that up for probably about six days. And then I'd have missed one, got discouraged, felt a bit bad, not done it for a few more days, and then forgotten all about it. However, I have a really good friend in my life. And we, we're in community together. We spend time together in all kinds of different ways. But one of the key, one of the best times that we spend together is some time just asking each other what God is doing in our lives. What is he speaking to us about and what are we doing about it? He is able to, in that time, to remind me of those things, remind me of God's encouragement, of his vision for me. It doesn't mean that I get it perfect all the time. I never will. But it does encourage me to get back up, remember what God is calling me to. I think it's really interesting that in Zacchaeus' story, there's no indication that he was supposed to give up his job as a tax collector. I'm sure many people in Jericho at the time would have assumed that that was what he would have to do if he was to truly repent and start following God. And I'm also sure that trying to love God with all your soul while working in that situation, being a tax collector for the Roman Empire, would have been really difficult. We see time and again that God calls people to stand and to be in situations that are less than ideal, to love God with all of their souls in places that they might you know, otherwise not choose to put themselves. If you want to hear more about that concept, go back and listen to Karenza's talk from a couple of weeks ago about Daniel, who's in a very similar situation, talk about how we can be blessed to be a blessing in our work. As we draw to a close, I think it's worth remembering how big the call is, how big that challenge is to love God with all of our souls. This is not about giving part of ourselves to God. It's about bringing all of our lives, everything we are, our hearts, our minds, our bodies, everything we are into alignment with God's kingdom. As the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. But it's not only every thought, it's every action, everything in our lives. But we don't have to do it alone. 
We have a God who doesn't sit far away and aloof in judgment, but who came in the person of Jesus to show us how to love God with all of our souls. And more than that, he came to sacrifice his own life so that that same power that brought him back to life could be at work in us, doing what we could never do on our own, transforming us into people whose souls, whose whole lives are directed towards loving God. For Zacchaeus, this meant rejecting the old life of hoarding wealth and dishonest dealing and putting into practice the new life of generosity and integrity. For each of us, it will look different and it will look different in different times and different places. But it will always involve seeking encounter with Jesus, letting his power transform us and working to put that change into practice. So I just want to take a moment now to be still, be quiet and respond. There may be a number of things that that God is saying to you right now. And I just encourage you, whatever that is, to engage with it. But as a few suggestions, there may be, it may be that you've realized you don't have that opportunity, that space in life to encounter with Jesus. And I just, if that is the case, I just encourage you to think about, imagine where that could be. And It doesn't have to be massive. You can start small. But where could you create space to encounter Jesus? And who could you tell about your plan? It may be that you you are aware that you have some unfinished business of repentance. And as I say this, I'm aware that Anytime we talk about repentance, it's really easy for people to start feeling guilty, feeling shame, and that's not what I'm intending at all. The conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit will be about calling you into fullness of life. It will be hopeful. It might be painful, but we don't have to. We don't have to be shamed. But if you are aware that there's some unfinished business there, is there a practice that you need to to start doing? A change that you need to make? How might you need to live differently? And again, who can you tell about it? So let's just wait. Okay, so if God is doing something in you, pray that you would yeah, just hold on to it. It'll probably take some time to work itself out, but that's okay. I pray for each of us that this is a calling that we would grow more and more into living out, that we would be a people whose lives, whose souls, all of us, it's directed to loving God in the whole breadth of what that means. Amen.